Good morning, church family. Uh, it's good to sing of an empty tomb. Our Lord is risen. Um, well, as we, uh, as we begin this morning, <clears throat> I want to mention there's a few things uh, through the month of October that we're going to be praying for, and we'll talk about those uh, at the end of the service. But um, I want to mention one uh, particular item of prayer that we want to continue to be in prayer for, which is uh, the, the conflict that's going on um, between uh, Israel and Gaza uh, in, in the region over there. And um, it's really easy, I think. We, sp- we spent a, a good amount of our time praying also at our second Wednesday service um, for what's going on. Um, and it's very easy, I think, to, uh, to be consumed with uh, information about what's going on there. And uh, maybe for some of you, it's very far out of sight, out of mind. Uh, for others, maybe you're following along very closely. Um, or maybe it's very easy to be filled with grief um, and to, to, to see what's going on, whether it's on the news or on social media. Uh, some of the scenes just too horrific to even imagine. Um, innocent lives lost. Um, but we, we do want to pray for peace, and that's, that's something you, you may hear a lot, that we want to pray for peace. We want to pray for the uh, sparing of innocent lives. We want to pray against uh, the destructive force of the enemy. But I want to draw our attention, particularly uh, as the church, uh, that we would pray for God's people, the church, um, that this morning uh, in Gaza, there were Christians gathered uh, to worship our Savior. Many, many Christians in the Palestinian region have, who've come to know Jesus over the last decade. There are Christians this morning in Israel who gathered as the church of Jesus who have trusted in Christ and who gather to worship and to sing just as we did today. And so I, I want us to remember them and to pray that the Lord would shine brightly through his people, the church um, in the region, um, even in darkness, uh, that the church of Jesus would shine brightly to those who suffer. Um, and so would you join me as we, as we pray, as we begin this morning? And let's, uh, let's go to our God. Father, we, we have heavy hearts for all, that is, uh, all the suffering in our world and, and as we follow what the conflict uh, in the Middle East and, and uh, the region of Palestine and Israel, Lord, we ask, Father, for peace. God, we do ask that you would destroy, you would destroy the, the schemes of the devil, that you would stamp out those who would seek to kill innocent people that you would come against forces who, who would seek to kill and destroy as, as we know uh, our enemy does, our enemy the devil. But Lord, this morning we lift high the name of Jesus and we ask that Jesus would be the source of life for people in that region. Lord, we don't know how, we lament that we don't even know how to pray. Uh, But we acknowledge that there is one hope. There is one Prince of Peace. And his name is Jesus. And so, Lord, we we lift up those who who trust Christ, who belong to Jesus, our brothers and sisters, who we are bonded to by the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you protect them? Would you comfort them? Would uh, Would you help them to walk as those who have hope beyond this life? And with the testimony of the church of Jesus uh, shine brightly in a place of suffering. And Lord, would you use even this to draw many to yourself? 
So Lord, we ask you to do what only you can do. Would you move? Would you glorify yourself? And would many proclaim the name of Jesus and trust all he's done? I pray this in Christ's name. I'm gonna ask you right now uh, that you would pray for your own heart now as we move into uh, God's word together. I just pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word, that you would hear what he would have you to hear. Would you pray for me that he would speak through me, even in, in weakness, that he, would, that he would make himself great, that God's word would be made known um, as I speak, would the spirit speak to us? Lord, would you move in our midst? Would your word be precious to us? And would Christ be glorified as we speak and as we go together to your scriptures? And we pray all this in his holy name. Amen. Well, have you ever given a a friend or maybe one of your kids some, some really good counsel? Really good advice. Like they come to you, they're in a difficult situation, uh, and you give them, uh, you, you kind of give them some, some wisdom. You show them, kind of here's, here's what you should think, what you should do. And for whatever reason, they leave your presence and they don't heed your counsel. They go and do something else. And then after the fact, when things went exactly the way that you said that they would go, and you come face to face again with your friend or with your child, It's a real sign of maturity when you don't look them in the eye and say, I told you so. I told you so. That might be one of the most vicious taunts that you can lob at somebody. Because not only are they feeling the pain of the circumstance that they got themselves into, but they're also feeling the pain of knowing that they didn't listen to you. (laughs) Knowing that they they could have avoided it. They should have just heeded the warning. The history of Israel has a lot of I told you so moments. Uh, Israel receives a warning, they ignore a warning, and then they suffer the consequence. And often it's the prophets telling the people, I told you, you were warned. This is why you're here. You were warned, but it's not too late. Turn back. It's not too late to repent. And we're about to run through a lot of that. Um, Today we're as we continue our series from garden to glory, we're going to do something that's probably too ambitious. Uh, we're going to speed up the story a lot. Uh, I mean, like a lot, like the rest of the Old Testament, a lot. Uh, that's if you've been tracking with us. Yeah, that's a lot of books. I know, but they all do kind of interact with one another. And and if we really look from a time perspective, the amount of time that they is covered from Abraham to Judges is actually more than the rest of the Old Testament. 
Uh, and, and, and you'll often see when, when reading uh, teachings or surveys on the Old Testament. You'll see much more time given to the first five books. And the reason for that is, is simple. It, they really lay the groundwork for everything else that plays out. And, and our aim has been in this series to really answer the question, what is the singular story that the Bible's telling? Because I think when we understand the overarching story of, of the scripture, it really sets us free so that when we're bogged down in the building specs of the tabernacle, or, or the, the idolatry of the kings, which we're going to see today, we can really know how it all fits into the story. Like, where, where are we? And we can know how it is all leading to Jesus, as our Savior teaches us in the New Testament. And so we've, we've set the scene so far. Abraham, we remember, was given a promise that God would make his family into a nation, that they would be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And last week, uh, even though it was sad and they spent time wandering in the wilderness, it seemed like everything was beginning to come together. Through captivity in Egypt, God had grown them into a mighty nation, a people. Through the Exodus and, and years of wandering, he had guided them now to the precipice of the promised land. That's God's place. And then through Moses, God gave them commands Law, how to live God's law so that they might be under his rule, his blessing. And so the scene is set. And today we're going to see, well, how did it work out? How did it go in the land? So as we walk through the story, we'll, we'll be guided uh, by these four points. Number one, what was their problem from the start? Number two, we're going to see the rise of the kingdom. And then number three, the fall of the kingdom. And lastly, number four, will it ever be fixed? Will it ever be fixed? Beginning with number one, what was their problem from the start? Well, we've seen this going back to the beginning of the Bible, but it it just won't go away. That the root problem uh, for the rest of the Old Testament, in fact, the the root human problem is a worship problem. Or, Or if you would prefer, the root problem is a love problem. What do we worship? What do we love? What do we esteem most highly? Because, because that, that is what will shape our behavior. That is what will shape who we are. Eve lusted for knowledge more than she longed for God. And, and she was willing to forsake obedience with Yahweh to get it. Cain's worship was self-focused. He was, he was selfish in coming before the Lord. And, and when God rejected his sacrifice, he murdered his brother. Violence is the product of of forsaking the worship of God. And only a few chapters after the flood, what's mankind doing? Building a tower. And what's the purpose of the tower? For the sake of our name. They're building their own name. That they might be permanent, known, self as idol. And then by God's grace... And only his grace, God calls a man named Abraham to start a people. And it was all grace because what was Abraham's family doing? They too, worshiping idols. And then we saw last week, as Pastor Lawson walked through the rescue of God's people from Egypt, what was the very first command that God gives them in their law? God gives his law and he says this, the very first command, do not have other gods 
beside me. And just, just so it's clear, command number two, don't make an idol out of anything in heaven or earth. It's pretty all-inclusive, anything in heaven or earth. Uh, in fact, he goes on, and I, I think this is just to say, if you didn't make the idol, but somebody else made the idol, he just goes on in verse five, do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. And here's how serious he is about it. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This is his law in, in Exodus. But if you think after hearing this warning that they got a handle then on their worship problem before they entered the land, that's a big nope. Did not do it. And they got multiple warnings. We're gonna see it throughout the scriptures today. At every point in Israel's history, he gives them prophets. The role of the prophets is to remind them of the promises, of the covenant, to warn them against idolatry. Don't do it. Don't worship those other gods. Repent, turn back. That was their, that was their job, say, to say, love God again. Worship him only. And through all the history that we're gonna cover today, the prophets they were prophesying at the same time as these events were happening. Some of the prophets are actually in the history books. So we get uh, Samuel and Nathan, Elijah. Others, we have their written testimony, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Haggai. We have, we, we have their stories in written form. And so we begin with a warning from the prophet Moses. Moses spoke to the people for God and he speaks to them in Deuteronomy. And if, if you've not spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy really sets up the rest of the Bible. It's really giving a foreshadowing of what's, what, what's all about to occur. And, and it, it's basically Moses' parting shots before they enter into the land because they're, they're finally about to go in. What does he tell them? He tells them what we just read. Love God. Love God. Listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. And here's how he helps them. He's, he's trying to help them get the words in, in their heart. He says, repeat them. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you're at your house, when you're walking on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign in your hand, on your forehead. Put them on the doorpost of your house. Put it everywhere so that you won't forget, he's saying. Put them on your city gates, he says. And then in verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build. Houses full of every good thing that you didn't fill them with. Cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. And when you eat and you're satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not follow other gods, he says in verse 14. Do not follow the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of of the earth. I really think this is a, a, an idiom, a, a phrase that's, that's saying even more, even more deeply than obliterate you from the face of the earth. I think, I think it really is saying from the surface of this land, you'll be gone. This, you won't be here anymore. You won't be in this place anymore. And, and I think even for some, your family will not be around any longer if you do not 
if you do not listen, if you do not worship God. Moses is describing everything that we're about to see. Love him with all you are, all your heart, all your obedience. Don't forget him. Do everything you can to not forget him. But if you do, he's gonna drive you out. If you don't worship him. And so I imagine this generation of Israelites, they are, they've, they've, Probably some of these children remember. They remember like being on the edge of the promised land, thinking they were about to go in as children. And their parents didn't trust God, did they? And so they wandered for 40 more years. And, and these children now are, are, are grownups. Many of them 40 to 60 years old. They've been humbled, beaten down by life in the wilderness. The older generation has died off. And so same song, second verse, they send spies into the land again, but this time instead of being, afraid, or being afraid and, and overwhelmed, they trust God, they believe him. And just like in the Exodus, God parts the waters. This time it's the Jordan River and the whole community walks across the dry land into the promised land. And what do they do first thing when they get there? They worship, they worship God says, go get the stones that you just, that, that were just in the, in the riverbed and bring them out. Set those stones, 12 of them over here so that you can walk your children back and you can show them the stones and you can show them that God did this. God brought us here and they worshiped the Lord. And then they, just like they, they did in Exodus before they left Egypt, as they come into the land, they take a Passover meal. And they remember that God forgave sins, that God had mercy And soon then they march on to Jericho. God tells them to march around the city and to blow trumpets and to shout. And without even brandishing a weapon, what happens? Walls come down. Is this what it's going to be like to obey God? Like we don't, the walls just fall? Stuff just happens for us? And God tells them to go in and conquer the city and they do. He says not to leave a trace. Unlike their parents, they believe God and they do it. And I think sometimes with these conquest passages in Joshua, we, we get a little uncomfortable. <clears throat> but what I think we're seeing is we're seeing God's judgment against sin, much like we see in the flood. That God has been patient. In Genesis, we read that he's been patient for 400 years with the people in Canaan. He's been patient and now that that time is up, and so we're seeing God's judgment poured out on the land and we're seeing also protection for God's people because he knows if, if they're around these people, they will get corrupted by them. They will worship their gods. So he says, don't leave a trace. But as though to demonstrate how difficult this was all going to be, a single Israelite named Achan kept some of the spoils from Jericho and he took it back like a, like a, little kid with cookie dough under the bed. He took the spoils back to his tent and he hid it. He hid it under the ground. And what happened? The next battle they go into fight, they get routed, they lose. People die. God's people are on the run, running away from the enemy. And God says to Joshua, you didn't obey me. You didn't listen. One of your people chose greed over worship, over obedience. And so what do they do? They repented. They brought their sin before the Lord. And finally, at the end of Joshua's life, 
They've done it. They've conquered the whole land. They've walked with God. Joshua calls them together to give a farewell message, much like Moses did. And he tells them, I'm going to tell you the same thing Moses did. God gave you this land. You better remember it was God, not you. And he says in, in, in verse uh, 14 of, of Joshua chapter 24, therefore fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today, which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in the, whose land you're living? As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. The people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. They're pretty good at this. <laughs> but Joshua tells them, uh, look, he, he keeps going. Joshua told the people, you will not be able to worship the Lord because he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your trans transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you. He'll harm you and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. No, the people answered Joshua. What are you talking about? Of course we'll worship the Lord. And then what does he say in verse 23? Then get rid of the foreign gods. Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you, that are among you, and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. See, the foreign, heart, the foreign idols were still in their hearts. He's saying, get rid of it. Get rid of it. If you are not, if your heart is not for the Lord, you will suffer and you will be destroyed. We want so badly for them to get in and get, to get it, to, to worship and to love God only. But even it seems Joshua knows this isn't going to work. He said, I'm still having to tell you to, to get rid of foreign gods. Choose today, he says, turn your heart to him today. And they did. They did for like a minute. But for that minute, for that brief time, finally, they were God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing in the land. There, there they are. Which leads us to number two, the rise of the kingdom. On the screen, I've got, <clears throat> I'm listing as we walk through these sections, you'll see some of the, the books and, the, and the, the places we're covering as we, as we move. But even underneath that, I've listed some of the prophets that are speaking at this time, that are speaking to the people. Um, and so these are, these are all interacting with one another. So uh, I, I, that, I hope that gives you kind of a picture of where we are as we move. So, so things are looking up. Uh, Israel is, is like the stock market, basically. It's like, at this point, a few steps forward, a couple steps back, a few more forward, uh, but we're heading in the right direction. Um, but I think we'll see this pattern a lot. D.A. Carson uh, gave this summary, and he was speaking of, of a Christian culture that he observed who had rejected Christ. And, and this is what he said about this cycle. He said, one generation believed the gospel, the next generation assumed the gospel, and the third generation denied or forgot the gospel. And nowhere do we see this pattern, I think more clearly, is in the Judges. In the book of Judges. God's people, like it seems like they're so set up in the land and, and they so quickly become compromised. It's really jarring. Like you, you, we read it and we're like, they immediately uh, run after idols, they get captured, they repent. And God sends a judge to rescue them. And then they do it again. Idols, 
They get captured, they repent, God sent the judge again to rescue them. And it's like, wait, shouldn't this be going better? Like, this just started. They're already doing this and it just started. We just got here. Now, there's, there's no king yet. And I think sometimes we read this part of the scriptures and we go, okay, well, God, like, it wasn't going well with the judges, so he, like, went to plan B with the king. But that, that's not at all what happened. A king was always what was coming to them. Even back in Genesis, uh, Jacob said to his sons that there would be a royal scepter in the household of Judah. There would be a king. And Moses said it very plainly in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He says, once you're in the land, this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 17, be sure to appoint over you the king, the Lord, your God chooses. And listen to the qualities this, this, this king will have. He should be part of the family, part of the nation, not an outsider. He should, acquire, he should not acquire lots of wealth and horses. He should not take multiple wives, but he should write out the law and he should read it and obey it all of his days. He should worship the Lord and he should be a humble king. This is the kind of king they need. So as we move into the days of Samuel, the up and down, up and down cycle is continuing. They love, they love God. They forget God. They, they repent. So finally, when they ask Samuel for a king, they don't want a Deuteronomy 17 king. That's not the kind of king they want. They want a king that will help them win. They're tired of losing and they're tired of having to listen to the prophets. They want a king that will make it good for them. And so that's what they're asking for. And Samuel says, okay. God, God tells Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king in this request. Vaughn Roberts says it this way. He says, they wanted a king instead of God rather than a king under God. So, so here we go. They've forgotten God even as they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul as their first king. Saul looked the part. He's impressive, strong. But he was the opposite of Deuteronomy 17. He was proud. He disobeyed God to protect himself, even to the point of trying to kill David. And as the Andrew Peterson song says, Hello, Saul, first king of Israel. You were foolish and strong, so you didn't last long. Goodbye, Saul. And that's Saul's verse. That's all he gets um, because that's how poorly it went. So despite a couple of setbacks, this, this upward trajectory of God's people continues. The judges were a setback. Even Saul was a setback. He was not a good king, but Samuel is a good judge. And God's next king, David, this was the Deuteronomy 17 king. This was him. He was humble. He was a shepherd boy. He's not impressive, not tall. He's a hero for us short guys. I like to think of him as short because he was called when he was young. So maybe he stayed short. That's what I like to think. Um, uh, again, it's grace. God doesn't come to the impressive, to the tall. He comes to the unimpressive. Uh, even David's own dad didn't think of him when it was time to like, maybe one of your sons could be the next one. And David's still out in the field because Jesse doesn't think he could possibly be talking about David. God rarely calls the firstborn or, or, or the strongest no, he calls and he strengthens the lowly. Samuel tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. The heart doesn't show up in those other things, does it? He's just the sort of king Israel needed. He isn't just a king. He's a worshiper. They had a worship problem and they needed a worshiper king. 
We're still singing his worship songs today. He wrote some great ones. He didn't have any interest in other gods. No, he's saying your love is better than life. He wrote that in Psalm 63. So things are looking up. David has a long and wonderful reign. He brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The the symbol of God's presence there so they might worship and, and be a people centered around God's worship and his presence. He defeats many of Israel's enemies and he longs to build a temple for God. In fact, he says to the prophet Nathan, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the Ark of God sits in tent curtains. He's going, why do I have a house? God's in a tent. God, I'm going to build God a house. And in 2 Samuel 7, God, God makes a covenant with David. He makes a promise to David. He said, and this is so amazing. He tells David, you want to build me a house, I know. But I'm going to make your house. And I'm going to make your house last. Your family will be established. Here's what he says to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. It says, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendants or your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. What a promise. What a promise. Permanence for God's people in the land, with his presence. And David's going, it's my family. You're gonna do this through me, my family? A forever throne? God will be a father to the king? That's the sort of language being used here. I mean, if you know the story, like you know Solomon and you go, man, this is like too good of language for Solomon almost. And I think we know because this language is pointing us to the true king, to King Jesus. And this is kind of how prophecy works. And I think we see this as we come to the text. Uh, and, and prophecies, if you've not heard this description before, I think this is helpful. Prophecies operate much like a mountain range. And, and when, you, when, you see, when you read a prophecy and you see what it says, it, it's kind of like driving up on a mountain range. And as you're driving up, the mountains look like they're all just there. They're flat in front of you. But what happens as you get closer to the mountain ranges? you realize, oh, that mountain is actually close. But there's a, the other mountain that I saw that looked like it was all just together, that one's way past this one. And then as, as you get past the first mountain, you realize, oh, the other mountain that I saw that was all just one thing, it's even further out. And that's how the prophecies s- seem to work, is that the prophets will be writing about a specific incident that's happening at the time. But it's like a mountain range. And what we're missing as we move forward and the New Testament authors will help us to see it is that this prophecy is actually pointing even further. It's saying something about now, but it's saying something even further. And we now having God's word in its fullness, we get to see this beautiful range of the prophecies uh, that, that speak of what God is going to do. So just when all this sounds so amazing, so amazing, what happens to David? He falls. One of the more disappointing moves in the scriptures, we see David, he sins by taking a married man's wife, Bathsheba, sleeping with her. 
And to cover it up, he has her husband, Uriah, he has him killed. And when the prophet Nathan comes and he calls David out, David repents. And he cries out to the Lord. We read his words in Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. It's a jarring reminder that even the godliest king, even the godliest human leader will fail. And as we read the story, it's bad news as we look to the future. God says to David, he says, I'm going to bring disorder on you from your own family. That house that I was going to build for you, it's still going to get built, but you're going to experience a lot of chaos. That's David's life from here on. His children will sin against one another. One son kills another son. Finally, his son Absalom tries to overthrow David. But David remains faithful to God. David loves God. David worships God. And in his final act, even as another son tries to take the throne, David commissions his son Solomon to be king. And amazingly, despite all, this, all, all of that chaos in David's life, it still seems like we're on an upward trend. Like we're still going up. We have a little chart that, that kind of, everything's still good. Like it's, it's, it's good and then it's bad a little bit, but then it's better. And then it's, and we're heading in the right direction all the way until Solomon. I mean, you can't discuss the rise of, of the kingdom of God's people without looking at the life of Solomon. Under Solomon, the kingdom prospers. And in the pinnacle moment, Solomon builds the temple and listen to his prayer of thanksgiving at the temple's dedication. He says, blessed be the Lord. He has given a rest to his people, Israel, according to all he has said. Not one of all the good promises he made through his servant Moses has failed. Not one. Solomon sees the faithful hand of God who has brought them up and into the land, who saved them, who spared them. This is really the pinnacle of the nation. God's people, as numerous and as prosperous as they've ever been, in God's place, their borders extending further than ever, far north, all the way south to Egypt, his presence with them in the temple. And they were experiencing God's rule and his blessing as they're under the rule of a wise king. Solomon prayed for wisdom from God and God gave it to him. He's one of the wisest that we know to have ever lived. He wrote uh, the wisdom literature in our scriptures. He wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And the nation is, is blessing the world just like uh, God had promised to Abraham. Other rulers are visiting to learn from Solomon and to, to benefit from, from Israel's prosperity. Second Chronicles 9 tells us all the kings of the world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. This was the nation at its peak. But what did we say at the beginning? It all comes back to worship. It all comes back to, to worship. Would the king worship and obey God? Listen to the warning from Moses, that same Deuteronomy 17 warning. The king must not acquire many horses for himself. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver 
and gold for himself. And like a slow motion train wreck, that's exactly what happens. In 2 Chronicles chapter 9, Solomon was making furniture, furniture for himself out of gold. He was making cups to drink of, or to drink from out of gold. And, and yeah, you guessed it. He had 4,000 horse stalls. He had multiplied wealth, hadn't he, for himself. He had multiplied horses trying to make his kingdom strong. And in 1 Kings 11, we read that he was deeply attached to women from all of the nations. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And we read that they turned his heart away. Which leads to number three, the fall of the kingdom. God's blessings had become idolatry in Solomon's heart. His need for power and sex and riches had lured his heart from God to these other idols. But unlike David, Solomon does not repent. No, he doubles down and he builds altars in the land for these other gods. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 6 says, Solomon did what was evil on the Lord's sight. And unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to God. He did not remain loyal to the Lord. We said it earlier, what one generation believes, the next generation assumes. And after Solomon, the ensuing generations forget. And so much like my basketball skills at the age of 17, the nation has peaked. There's no more jumping up and touching the backboard anymore. There's only standing out at the three-point line and hoping not to fall. Uh, the stock market fluctuation of the faithfulness of God's people has been, has been turned and it's reversed. And now here we go on the way down. Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, were evil and they hated each other. They both vied for power, so what did God do? God broke the kingdom into two. Jeroboam rebelled and he took the 10 northern tribes. They would become known as Israel. Rehoboam took Solomon's throne and he led the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south and the southern kingdom became known as Judah. And since the northern kingdom didn't have Jerusalem, Rehoboam set up two places of worship in the north and you get, guess what? Guess what he put there? Golden calves. It's like you, you can't make this stuff up. It's, it's a nightmare that won't end. It's, it's, sin is unraveling all that was once and beautiful for God's people. And it doesn't stop. Much of this downfall happens in the book of Kings. And you know, I've mentioned Samuel and Kings, and we'll talk about Chronicles. Those, those books, we, we have First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. Uh, these are really just singular books that, are, that have been broken into two because they're so long. Um, but uh, the, it, it's... It, it's interesting. Let's just talk for a minute about these, these books. I think we read, we understand when we read a, a prophet that the prophet was writing to a group of people, that he was, he was talking about their sin. And, their, and so we, we, can, we can hear and believe things that he said to them that we should also hear. But we understand, I think, more clearly, he was writing to that group of people about their issues. But sometimes I think we cannot read the historical books that way. 
We read the historical books and we think, oh, this is just a history textbook that was written for all of us. Um, but but that's, that's, not, that's not how these books were written. We shouldn't see them. They're, they're almost, almost like letters. These narratives weren't first written for us. They, they are for us. We, we can learn from them. But first, they were written to the nation. When you, were, when you and I read First Kings and Second Kings, like we go, man, this is depressing. Like so much idolatry, just every page. But when Israel reads the book of Kings, they read it while in captivity and they understand this is what our idolatry did to us. This is why the book was written so that they might see this is where your idolatry took you. And with each successive change of power, things get seemingly worse. God's king was to be a blessing. If he pursued God, so would the people. But if God's king pursues idolatry and sin, as the king goes, so go the people. And I won't mention each king, but you can see on the screen uh, this downward trajectory now. In the north, in Israel, there's hardly ever a mention of a good king. We see quickly the prophets Elijah and Elisha show up. They're pleading with God's people, stop worshiping Baal. Baal has no power. Baal is nothing. Look at God's power. He destroys the works of Baal. But God's people are too hard-hearted and they will not repent. And within 200 years, Israel, the north, is conquered by Assyria from the north. King says that it was the Lord who sent their captors because, he, because they had forgotten God. These tribes, sadly, we never see them reestablished. And the southern kingdom of Judah, even though they have the temple, this constant reminder of God's presence is still right there in town with them. Still they worship other gods. There were a few bright spots within Judah's kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. And some moments of national repentance, like when King Josiah discovers a copy of the law and in repentance he, he, he brings it before the nation and, and change begins to happen. But it never lasts. The poison of idolatry is running in their bloodstream. And the prophets continue warning, if you don't turn back, exile is coming for you, just like it did Israel. Turn from your idolatry. Stop trampling on the poor. There were, there were instructions the, the prophets had given them for how they were to live ethically, how they were to behave. God's people were to, were to bless the world. And so the prophets are calling them out on all of their idolatry, all of their behavior. Jeremiah writes this as an example. This was while they were in exile, but it's an example of the sort of condemnation the prophets write. In Jeremiah 22, this is what the Lord says. Rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien, the fatherless or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place. For if you conscientiously carry out this word, then kings sitting on David's throne will enter through the gates of this palace, riding on chariots and horses, they, their officers and their people. But if you do not obey these words, then I swear by myself, this is the Lord's declaration that this house will become a ruin. And this, in verse eight, this is, uh, it's this sad idea, this sad scene. 
Many nations will pass by this city, Jeremiah writes, on the words of the Lord. They will pass by this city and ask one another, why did the Lord do such a thing to this great city? They will answer, because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed in worship to other gods and served them. God's people had a worship problem. And so despite these many warnings, 150 years after Israel is taken captive, God sends the wicked Babylonians in to take Judah captive. And and at this point, at this point, it almost feels like the fall again. Not the fall weather, but Adam and Eve. God's people kicked out of God's place because of their idolatry and sin. It's heartbreaking. They had paradise in the land, God's land. Think of the bittersweet stories that they probably told one another while in exile. We have a, we have a song they wrote. Listen to their song from exile in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees for our captors there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Their enemies wanted them to, be enter- wanted them to entertain them with their songs from Zion, from Jerusalem. My worship is now just entertainment for my enemies. Everything Moses and Joshua had warned them about before entering the land has come to pass. So, so what can we learn from this? Like, what, what do we learn from this partial, temporary kingdom? Rise up and, and fall within a flash, it seems. I, I think we have to see, and this has to show us and point us to the reality that Israel's best temple, her best king, was but a passing shadow. It was incomplete. And I, and I believe if we, if we trust what the scriptures teach us, that this kingdom forces us to ask the question, is there a better one to come? And if so, how? And I think that's the question they had to be asking. Maybe, maybe you're asking, even as you listen, well, how? How will, this, how will this get better? How will it ever be fixed? Which is number four. How will it ever be fixed? And will it ever be fixed? Even in exile, the prophets are, are giving them hope. People, we, we love to, to quote this passage from Jeremiah chapter 29, and you hear it frequently, and I think that's okay that we, that we quote it. It's, it's God's word. But it was written for them. And here's, here's what Jeremiah said to them. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will restore you to this place. And what does he tell him in chapter and verse 11, the one we quote frequently, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans to give you a hope and a future. They had a hope still. Nehemiah 
who was instrumental in bringing them back to the land. Nehemiah held on to the prophecy of Moses and he quotes it in Nehemiah chapter one. If you return to me and carefully obey, observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. And so miraculously, as the people of God repent and are humbled, just as God had sent the captors to take them away, God moves in now in the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to let them go. Just like, just like the Pharaoh had let them go out into the wilderness from Egypt so they might worship God, the Persian king Cyrus lets them go home. Back to Jerusalem so they might worship And so sure enough, after 70 years in exile, the people began to return home. The nation of Judah coming back to the land, beaten down, smaller, humbled, repentant. And they had high expectations, I think, for the rebuild. They had read the prophet Ezekiel who was writing to them. The prophet Ezekiel was writing, prophesying of a new temple, a more magnificent one than the first. His vision of the land was astounding. It was like a new garden of Eden is how Ezekiel describes it. As though it would be better than the land was before. It would be a a, a place of, of, of flourishing to provide for the people of the world. And so they begin this hope. This hopeful rebuild with Ezra and with Nehemiah. But there's this incredibly sad moment that, I, that happens as they rebuild. And I, this, see, the rebuild wasn't more magnificent. It wasn't like the prophecy seemed to be saying. It, it was more like a really bad sequel. Jerusalem 2.0. And it wasn't good. It didn't compare. And in one of the most bittersweet scenes in the scripture... We read this in Ezra chapter three. They're, they're, they're laying the foundation for the new temple. And I, I want you to just imagine this scene in your mind. In Ezra three, verse 10, we read that when the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They had the whole band together. They were ready. And they sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. For he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. They were singing David's songs. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. It's the worship service they were waiting for. Like this is all their years in exile and they're waiting for this to get back and to worship with God's people. And after this brutal exile, they're home. It's finally happening. But look at verse 12. But many of the older priests, the Levites and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully, The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. For the young Israelites that had been born and had been raised in captivity, exile was all they knew. And as they came home, this was glorious. Finally, we're back. But for these older Jews, 
they weep. They weep because they remember. They remember how majestic it was, how God's Shekinah glory dwelled with them in his temple. So is this going to be it? And as the curtain is closing on the Old Testament, what do we have? We've, we've got God's people, though not as many of them. And they're back in God's place, but it's, it's more like a cheap imitation of home now. And his blessing and his rule, they seem distant. They have no king. There's faith waning in the land. But, but this, is, this is why I love that the very last book in the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament uh, is the book of Chronicles. Now, in our, in our scriptures, Chronicles is placed uh, kind of more in chronological order with, we got Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, telling many of the same things, uh, or the same times, uh, periods of time. Uh, and, and in fact, I think sometimes when we read Samuel, when we're going through our Bible reading plan, we read Samuel and then we read Kings, we get to Chronicles and we're like, we just did this. Like, why am I reading the same thing over again? Uh, but, but just as Kings was written, during the exile, reminding them, this is all the evil idolatry that got you into the exile. This is why you're here. Kings is basically one big, I told you so. But Chronicles is the last of the Old Testament books written. After the exile, everyone back home, it's not quite living up to the hype. And as the Israelites wonder, is God done with us? Will he be with us still? Chronicles is the flashback. And Chronicles goes back and begins with Adam and zooms in on that original family of faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of David, of the house of Judah. And as Ezra, or whoever, wrote, whoever the author of Chronicles is, as he writes their testimony uh, of history for them, he's guided of the hope of the prophets. It's as, it's as if he's saying in Chronicles, Things may not be fixed yet, but hope is coming. God is still building his kingdom and he will be faithful. He will be faithful to those who love him. But how? How will we make it all right? How will this new kingdom be any better if we still have the same worship problem, how is it for us? How is it any better for us if we still have the same problem they did? A problem of worship, of, of, of love, of other things rather than God. Well, I think the prophets point us even further to the next mountain range. And I don't want to jump too much into our sermon next week. But spoiler alert. Isaiah chapter 53 this is Jesus, by the way. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This is a humble, humble king. This is a Deuteronomy 17 king. The Deuteronomy 7 king to trump all other Deuteronomy 17 kings. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The rescue God's people would need would not be that of a new king to conquer the land, 
but a king to conquer sin and death. And King Jesus came to do such a thing. The rescue we need isn't a rescue from exile in Babylon. We need to be rescued from our hearts, from our sin. We don't need a new temple, though there is a temple to come. We don't need a new place to sacrifice more animals. We need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to die in our place for our sin and to rise again. And this is what Jesus will come to do. Our King is coming. Hold on. It may not be fixed yet. It is not fixed even now, but our king is faithful. God has not forgotten you and he will come for his people. Let's go to him now and let's pray. I think it could be really easy to isolate ourselves from Israel's history and not see our own idolatry. So even now as as we pray, I, I would... I would urge you, go to the Lord. Where have the idols of this world, the the lures of this age, where have they turned your heart from God? What are the patterns and the practices, the hobbies, the other loves that have lured you away from the one who's deserving the love of all your heart? Confess to the Lord. Ask him to turn your heart back to him. If you aren't a Christian today, there is only one king who saves. There is no plan for Israel and a plan for us. There is Jesus, the only one, the name above every name, the only one who can save, the only one who can forgive. So cry out to him. If you've never trusted Jesus, if you've, if you've carried your own baggage and your own uh, sin and your own shame, your own guilt, your own feelings of unworthiness, Jesus will receive you today. Cry out and ask him. Save me, help me, forgive me. Oh, Father, will you help us? Would you help us to say with our brother David that your love is better than life? Where we have forgotten your love, where we have forsaken your grace, where we have been lured by other loves, Lord, would you draw our hearts back? We love you. You are so kind. You are merciful. You receive us when we turn to you. So Lord, would you remind us of your goodness again? We pray this in Christ's name.